The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. ...on the ground that we can just funnel resources to and be able to help out. Um, some of you have asked about the potential of us maybe getting a group of guys or gals or whoever together to go down and actually get our arms dirty and, and help out with some of that. So we'll stay in touch uh, with Bruce and Yancey and the guys down there at Clear Creek and see what needs come up and what opportunities come. I'd love to see a group from our church uh, trek down to Texas and, and do some work down there. So continue to pray for them, pray for the gospel opportunity. I love that line. He said, disaster creates community. I think that's, that's a, a powerful truth. And so just pray that God uses that. Um, as you guys know, um, also, uh, we were sharing that with you because we were able to send, um, based on your generosity, we were able to send $5,000 down to them to help out. And we'll continue to keep our thumb on the pulse of the stuff that's going on. If you should feel led to give still, clearcreek.org is the website for that church. And you can give directly through that site. Um, and it's a really good place to give because since the church staff's already there, you're not funding employees or management or administration. All of the money goes towards um, hurricane uh, recovery efforts. So clearcreek.org is where you go for that. A couple other announcements. Grab your Bibles if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 1. We got a hustle this morning. Um, Luke chapter 1. Um, speaking of Acts 29 Network, um, we are really blessed. Please make a point to be here on October 1st. Two weeks from now, we are super blessed because Hunter Beaumont, pastor of Acts 29 Church in Denver, Colorado, and one of the board members for the Acts 29 U.S. West Network, one of our leaders, um, is going to be here to share the gospel with us. We are super lucky, and it's such a great opportunity to have Hunter with us. He's an incredible teacher. Um, he is small in stature, and you'll see what I mean when he gets here, but he is a ferocious gospel preacher. Preacher, You're going to love it. We're really blessed to have him. I lured him over here with the promise of steelhead fishing. So uh, we're going to be able to take him out on the river and then he's going to be hanging with us on October 1st. Please be here on October 1st. Um, also volunteer recruitment fair update. I said last week that next Saturday we were going to have a volunteer recruitment fair, but this week we got together as a staff and we were looking at the calendar and it just seemed like for whatever reason, we hit this season where every Saturday there was something going on. And I just want you guys to know, like we really not only value your time and the commitment that you guys have to make to be a part of things, but we actually purposed when we planted this church that we are not going to be the church that always has something going on so that we're constantly bringing you here. And the reason for that is if you're in here, you can't be out there. And, and that's the purpose of our church. Like, I want you guys coaching Little League. I want you guys helping your neighbors. I want you guys out there on mission for the gospel with people outside the church. So um, this volunteer recruitment fair we were going to have next Saturday, it's gone. We killed it. Um, what we're going to do instead is next Sunday, between services and after service, there'll be some booths outside um, for all the different places where we need help with serving. Please take advantage of that and check out the things that are there. We definitely have a lot of needs, um, but we are not going to have the volunteer recruitment fair next Saturday. We just wanted to uh, uh, really honor your guys' time and your schedules in that. Um, and then finally, there's a couple of other, there's some women's Bible studies and things going on. Please make sure you check this flyer that you got. If you didn't get one, stop by the Connect desk and get plugged into one of these. Some of these have sign-up deadlines and resource deadlines and things that you're going to need. Now, normally we would all stand for the reading of God's Word. However, I am going to attempt today to break a Heritage Christian Fellowship land speed record. Um, last week was four verses, this week, 51 verses. That's my goal today. Therefore, we don't have time to read through 
when we end up reading it twice, that's a hundred verses. We're not going to do that this morning. So we're just going to open in prayer and dive right into the text. Amen. So father, we just come before you right now and ask for your grace as we open your word. Lord, for some of us, this is passages and stories we've heard over and over and over, but Lord, let us not fall into the trap where we're numbed by them. Help us instead, Lord, will you just awaken our minds and our hearts Awaken our spirits to hear from you. Lord, may you speak to us in a fresh way this morning. May we see this in a new light this morning. May we know more about you and understand more about your plans this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody in here been to England? Just out of curiosity, raised hands. First service, way more. Um, Out of those of you that have been to England, I'm assuming if you've been to England, you probably, I can't imagine you didn't go to London while you were there. How many of you went to the Tower of London while you were in England and got to tour that? Yeah? Pretty fascinating tour going there. It's, It's basically like an old castle, fortress. It's an amazing historical event. And one of the draws that the Tower of London has there in England is it is the home right now of the crown jewels. So all the different crowns and scepters that the monarchy, that the rulers, the kings, the queens in, in all of English history have worn are there. And they're under tremendous lock and key. It's an incredible thing. A lot of people come to see it, but you don't just go rolling into the Tower of London and walk up and see the crowns. There's a process. You get a tour guide and you hear the history and you go through the outer walls first and you work your way through all these different things and you're learning all of this history as you go. It's tremendous. If you like history, this place is amazing. And then you get into the building in the middle of the area where the crown jewels are, but they're not even, it's not like you just walk in and see them. They're upstairs. You got to work your way through. And it's, it's a organized process where they march you through all sorts of other displays and historical things, even before you finally get into the vault where the crown jewels are. And it is a vault, trust me. Before you even get into there, they have screens on the walls and they're showing you the ceremonies where the different kings and queens are, are anointed and different knighting ceremonies and weddings and all this stuff. The reason they're doing this is, is all the way as you're making your way through this stuff, what they don't want you to do when you go into to see the crown jewels, they don't want you to just look at it and go, oh, that's a pretty diamond. What they want you to do is understand the history and the story that it's not just a diamond. It's not just a crown. It's something much bigger than that. It's part of history that's hundreds of years old. There's much more behind it. So as they march you through, they're teaching you the history before you actually see them. Because then when you see them, you're going to appreciate them to a much greater degree than if you just thought you were looking at a random diamond. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. So not only are we going to cover 51 verses in Luke, we're going to read Samuel We're going to read a lot of Samuel. We're going to read a whole lot of stuff because these are stories we've heard over and over and over and over. But our purpose here is going to join with the purpose of Luke as he's writing this. Because if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that Luke, as a historian who writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which tells the story of the church after Jesus Christ ascends into heaven, Luke is tying these things in consciously and purposefully to the ongoing story of history because he wants people to understand this church, this Christianity that's spreading in the book of Acts is not some weird cult. It's not new. It's part of a story that has been in place since Genesis 3. 
It's part of the work of God that has been going on since the very, very beginning. And he wants us to understand our place in it. And I think if we take that approach as we look at this story, it might help us appreciate these stories in a way that's new. Now, normally, we would look at these stories traditionally in most churches in December, um, but this is just where we happen to be. And actually, not to wreck your guys' Christmas, but Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, in case you don't know that. Most likely, it was around the end of September, so we're right where we need to be. Amen? But I don't want to ruin your Christmas. Just move on. We can talk about that over coffee someday. So here's where we are. We want to know everything that's happening here, not just a birth announcement that came in the mail. This is what we're looking at here. And the story here is important because the Bible starts working with one person, Adam. And then it adds a second person, Eve. And God works with them, but they fail and fall in, uh, eventually or quickly, you might say. But God doesn't just wipe out the plan and go, okay, well, I had this plan with Adam and Eve, and then they blew it. All right, well, forget them. Let's work with dogs instead of humans or whatever the case may be. He doesn't do that. He has a plan in place. And it's revealed in Genesis 3, right in the fall, the account of the fall of that sin, he has this plan in place. And so he begins moving forward. And so you follow the narrative along. And now it's not just a husband and wife. Now it's like a family lineage. We get to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God's working with this family now. And this family also, much like Adam and Eve, uh, not exactly pristine. There's some train wreck stories that take place. But again, God doesn't erase the marker board and start over. God continues. This plan is still there. And even though people are messing up, even though people are faithless, God's promises are true because he's faithful, not because they deserve it. Amen? So then we move from this family lineage, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into a nation. And we get into the story of the Exodus and the people of Israel as they move into the land and the story of the kings and, and all of this stuff. And though now we're in Luke and now in our own current context, we're way, way, way down the road for that. You might say, especially with the people of Israel in that sort of plan of God, it hits its pinnacle during that time. I mean, for the nation of Israel, at least up to our current time so far, it never seems to get better than that. King David, are you kidding me? I mean, he's a giant to this day in Israel. When you go to Israel still today, they still talk about David. And Solomon and the grandeur of the nation at that time, it was unbelievable. And it was so unbelievable that at one point, David's there and he's overlooking his kingdom. And you've got to remember, this is a guy who used to be a shepherd. He's a little nothing shepherd boy. And now he's king at the pinnacle of Israel's existence. And he's in a palace. People that used to be slaves, now in their own land, he's in a palace. And he looks over and he sees God's house. It's referred to as the tabernacle, if you know this story. And the tabernacle is a what? It's a tent. David in a palace, God in a tent. And David's heart's good. Like David wants to do the right thing. And he has this heart to honor God in that. And so he looks over and he thinks, man, this isn't right. I'm, the only reason I'm here anyway is because of God and God's living in a tent and I'm in a palace. I'm going to fix this. So he calls up Nathan, the prophet he says, Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. It's not right. The way this is, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan, here's David's heart. Here's David's plan. And he's like, man, do it, do it as the Lord wills, man, do it. But then that night, the Lord comes to Nathan, the prophet, and he speaks to him and he says something really, really important. So important 
that every single time we read the birth narratives of Jesus Christ, and especially the pronouncement to Mary, we should always remember what happened all the way back in the story of David. God says the following to Nathan. He says, go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for a dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, this is in 2 Samuel 7, by the way, on all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, I, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He's saying, David, look, um, I, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're doing here, but you're looking at me with pity. This isn't fair, man. I've got this house and poor homeless tent living God. I'll fix this. God's like, David, David, David. If I wanted a house, dude, I'd have a house. I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. I haven't asked you for it. I haven't commanded you for it. I'm not in debt. I'm not in need. I'm not homeless. But then listen to what he says. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you everywhere you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's known as the Davidic covenant. I'm going to build you a house, God. No, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. But we're not just talking about a house. He's in a palace. He's got a house. I'm going to build, I'm going to build a lineage. I'm going to build a generations after you. Now we know that David would have a son named Solomon who would build God a house. So there's an immediate fulfillment of that. But it can't be the ultimate fulfillment of that because what happens? Solomon's sons come. Civil war. Israel fractures. Then the Babylonians, the Assyrians, next thing you know, Israel doesn't even exist anymore. So either that's not the fulfillment God's talking about or God's a liar. Because God said, I will establish your throne forever. And now Israel doesn't even exist anymore. And you go, well, hold on, Jeff. Israel came back together. Remember Ezra, Nehemiah, the people came from captivity. They rebuilt the temple. They started doing all this stuff. Yeah, they did. They came back together, but it was a shadow of what it had always been. In fact, the elders, when they built the new temple, they wept. 
Every, all the young people were excited. We got our temple back. And the elders were like, man, this is not the same. And when you read the Davidic covenant, you don't get the idea that what he's talking about is going to be smaller. You get the idea of this magnificent, grand, huge promise. And then not only that, to say that Israel's throne is ruling forever, especially now as we are in the book of Luke, is you definitely can't say that because they're what? They're under the oppression of Rome. Rome is in charge of the entire world. And then on top of that, you have Herod, who is like the puppet king, a pagan king, over the people of Israel in that area. He does whatever Caesar tells him to do, but he's in charge of that region. And this guy, man, this dude's a real mess because he actually thinks he's the Messiah. In fact, he believed, and it was believed, that the Messiah would be the one to rebuild the temple. So Ezra's temple gets rebuilt, and then there's wars. That goes away. Herod's now in charge of Israel by the time we get to the book of Luke. Herod wants to be Messiah, believes that the Messiah is the one who's going to rebuild the temple. So Herod, pagan king, rebuilds the temple in grandeur, with gold everywhere. It's just this wonder of the world temple, trying to prove to people that he's the king and the Messiah, who has nothing to do with David's lineage has nothing to do with David's house or David's throne or any of those things. And then we'll find out pretty soon, not to give too much away, but he's going to actually not be Christ the Messiah. He's going to be an antichrist because he's going to go on to do what's referred to as the slaughter of the innocents and kill tons of children trying to prevent Jesus from being born. So if you're in this place now in Luke and you're going, okay, So God promised David a throne. He was going to establish the throne forever. This was going to last forever. And now to make matters worse, at this point in Israel's history, they have not heard from God at all for 400 years. 400 years. Like in our nation's history, there was a little place named Jamestown trying to get it together 400 years ago. So I wonder how many people, as time went on over and over and over, who heard rumors of these promises of God, Israel's going to be great, David's name will be great, the throne's going to be great, it'll last forever. And maybe they sound a lot like the people who reject Christ now. You guys, you keep talking about this king, but nothing changes. You're still just little old Israel under the thumb of Rome. You're not in charge of nothing. Your throne certainly hasn't been established forever. And just... After 400 years of not hearing from God, how many people just give up? Wasn't true. Or maybe even better yet, man, it was true, but we blew it so bad that God just finally erased the marker board and said, let's move on. Let's, let's see what's happening on Mars. Let's start over. And now we're just on our own and the promises are over. That's where we are now in this particular point in the story. 400 years they haven't heard from God. And so when God's plan in scripture begins to move again, where does it happen? At the palace? In the priesthood? In the temple? No, he starts with a barren woman. With a barren woman. It says in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's not coincidental that as God is getting his plan going, he starts with a barren woman. This is something, if you know your history, has happened over and over and over throughout the scriptures. It's a theme for people that are in those positions even in life today. There's great hope that scriptures give us in this. We have Sarah of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wife of Abraham, barren, has her first child at 90. He becomes the lineage of Christ, the lineage of Israel. And to this day, they call God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Big deal, right? And there's more. Then we have Rachel. We come on to Rachel. Rachel, and really anyone, by the way, in the culture of this time who's barren, is suffering tremendous reproach. Being mocked, being made fun of, being pointed at because being barren then was not just some medical condition. Um, as you know, a lot of the ancient cultures like this, if you had some sort of issue, be it barrenness or like a physical handicap, it wasn't just like this is the effect of a fallen world. What it was is, what did you do to deserve this? You have sinned and this is your shame. Or your parents have sinned and this is your shame. And, and so for someone who is barren in this culture, it's, you're worthless. Now there's some women, maybe even in this room, who have either been through seasons like that or are barren and they understand that now. You understand how that can feel. Like every time all of your friends get pregnant and there's a birth announcement and you see all the celebration, it's real easy to, to take upon yourself this feeling of, then what's my purpose? What's the point of all this? And I've had this whole desire and it's not going to happen, but it's happening to everyone else. And so even if our culture doesn't um, put the same shame and reproach on women in that condition, it's really easy for those women to adopt that themselves. So just imagine how much more it would be if on top of that yourself, your neighbors are pointing at you. There's whispers when you walk by. It's the scarlet letter even of that day. I mean, this is a really big deal. And Rachel was one who had the same thing. And God comes to her and he removes her reproach, gives her a son. His name is Benjamin. It ends up being a really big deal. Benjamin, the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a major player in scripture, just like Isaac. There's others as well, though. There's one. Now, we don't know this woman's name. We know her husband's name. His name was Manoah. We don't know his wife's name, but she was barren as well during the time of the judges, before there was a king in Israel. And at that time, there's this pronouncement that happens. An angel comes to them and says to them, I'm going to give you a son. And what you're going to do, this son, you need to understand, is set aside for a special purpose. And as a sign for that, to, to, to mark him for these specific purposes of God, he's going to be a Nazarite. And he's going to take a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was, if you were a Nazarite child, you would say, you do not touch strong drink, alcohol, wine. You have no contact with dead bodies at all. Animal carcasses, nothing. And, anybody know the last one? Don't cut your hair. Right. Seems random, Right. Can't have wine, can't touch dead bodies, can't, cut, can't get a haircut. That seems weird. 
But the purpose, there's a lot of history we could go into that we don't have time, but the purpose was this child is going to live in a way that sets him apart from everyone else that's in that culture at that time. And that's a sign and even um, a symbol to everyone around him that this child has been consecrated, set apart for the specific purposes of God. And in this particular story, they tell them what it's going to be. His name is going to be Samson. And his purpose is he's going to deliver Israel from the Philistines, from these enemies that had been plaguing them for so long. So here's another barren woman. Promise is given, a purpose, a specific purpose set aside by God. He's going to be a deliverer for them. And then we come to my personal favorite, Hannah. In the book of Samuel, Hannah. In 1 Samuel, we have the story of this woman named Hannah. It's very special to me because uh, my wife and I, for seven and a half years, were in this condition. We, there was a medical condition that we were told pregnancy is going to be almost impossible, if not absolutely impossible. Seven and a half years, no children. It's a story I'm going to tell in much greater detail when we get to the actual birth of Christ. But for right now, I, like, we can relate to this. In fact, we named our first child Hannah because of this story. And in this story, the book of Samuel opens up and there's this woman, Hannah, and it says in, in 1 Samuel 1, 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, she would be provoked. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So imagine that picture. Hannah's coming to the house of the Lord, to the temple, to do what? offer sacrifices and pray. Why might she be doing that a lot? Well, in the culture, she's told she's barren because of her sin. And in the culture, she knows the person that she needs to go to when she needs, when she's in that place is God. So every year she comes to the temple and offers sacrifices for her sin and pours her heart out to God. And year after year, after year, after year, nothing but mockery being made fun of. What do you think her rival's making fun of her? Are you going to do the sacrifices again? Are you going to pray again? Good luck with that, Hannah. And then to make matters worse, she doesn't just get mocked by this woman. She gets mocked unintentionally, but by the priest. Because Eli's there one day, a priest, and he looks over and he sees her and she's thrown herself there at the temple and she's just pouring her heart out and she's praying. The scriptures tell us that she vowed a vow to the Lord. So maybe, maybe she heard this story about Samson. That there was this Nazarite vow, this barren woman, and this child would be set aside for God's purpose. Maybe she went to the temple and said, okay, Lord, I know you've done this before. And so she prays. Verse 11 says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. I mean, she's like at the end and she is pouring herself out. So much so that when Eli looks over and sees her there praying, he can't hear what she's saying, but he sees her mouth moving and he thinks she's drunk. And he literally is like, hey, cut her off. Take the wine away from her. This woman doesn't need anything else. And she says back to him, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. These are heavy words that are being used in the original language here. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Like, 
priest, please don't be like everyone else that just looks at me as this worthless person. I'm just pouring myself out. I'm offering sacrifices. I'm begging God. And she goes on to say, do not regard your servant as worthless for all along. I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. And so Eli answered and says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then went the woman away and ate and her face was no longer sad. You you even see these things. If you talk with people that are experiencing or wrestling with anxiety, you know, one of the top number one things that happens when you deal with anxiety, you're not eating, you're not taking care of yourself, you're stressed out. And even then in those promises, she's clinging to the promises that this priest has even said back, which is so interesting because he didn't even hear prayers to begin with. And she goes and she eats and she leaves. But luckily, it's not up to the priest, it's up to the Lord, amen, because it says, And the Lord remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, which means heard by God, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And it's this incredible thing. She has this baby, there's this period of weaning that takes place, and then she comes back to the temple, and she brings her child just like she said, and she gives the child away. Now, there can be, that can be presented in such a way as if she's being really, really hesitant. Oh, now I got a kid, and I don't want to do it. I said I would give the kid to the Lord, now I don't want to do it, and I don't really know what to do here. I don't think that's necessarily right, or at least totally accurate, because she sings a song after that doesn't seem sad. She comes to the temple and she gives this child to the temple to be raised. And and there's this burden that has come off of her shoulders. Think about this. In each of those stories, at the birth of a baby, the reproach is gone. A baby is born and the reproach is lifted. Is there a gospel picture in that? Because of the birth of Christ and then his death and resurrection, our reproach is gone. But, but she is able to immediately experience this shame has been lifted. No more are people pointing their finger at her going, wonder what she did. It's over. And so she takes the child back to the temple and she sings a song. And I want you to hear what she's singing because I think it's going to resonate again in just a minute. Hannah prayed to the Lord and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. I wonder if she sang that right near her enemy, by the way. (laughs) The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor. Excuse me. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why is she singing this? She's not making this up out of thin air. She's singing her story. I was in the ash heap of our society. I was shameful. I was derided. I was mocked. I was worthless. And then God remembered me and look what he's done. 
Samuel goes on to become a pretty important player in biblical history, doesn't he? Her son becomes a prophet. And in his role, it's really, really important. There's some things about Samuel's birth that we need to remember. And then I swear we're going to jump into Luke. And it's this. Number one, the child could only come from God. She was barren, womb closed. This is, this is a child that could only come from God. Anyone knowing her or seeing this, this is something God did. Number two, it was a child of dedication. The Nazarite order given to the temple for a specific purpose and a specific mission. It wasn't just like she had a kid for her own sake. This child was given to her by God at God's hand for God's specific purposes. He was a child of transition. Think about this one. If you know your Bible, this is coming out of the time of Judges and moving into the time of the Kings. And Samuel becomes the prophet in the transition that is calling people from the sinful worldliness that takes place in the book of Judges into this idea of returning to worship God and living under God's rule. And and really his testimonies are why we have the book of Samuel in the first place. He becomes an incredibly important character in Scripture. And as a prophet, he announces judgment specifically on the house of Eli, the priest before. And here's what he's saying to them. He's saying to Eli's house, you guys are supposed to be the priests who sit in the role of being mediators between God and man. You're supposed to be in the place where you take the forlorn and the rejected and the people that are in their sin, and you are, through the sacrificial system, restoring them to God, their creator. And yet, what are you doing? You're using your role, the money, the temple itself. You're using all of this stuff to just live any old way you want, to get drunk, to do all these different kinds of things instead of the mission that God has sent you to accomplish. That's so so important. What's the, what's the message of the prophets throughout the entire uh, back half, if you will, of the Old Testament while Israel is in, um, is, is in exile? The prophets are coming back and they're saying to Israel over and over and over, you were a missionary nation. God created you for a specific purpose. Through the blessings he was going to give you as a nation, everybody else would look at you and they'd be able to tell that you're different. They'd be able to tell you're not like everyone else and they would see God because of you. But instead, you've taken the blessings of God and you've gotten fat on him. You've gone from one who finds God's favor to living as if you're God's favorite. This is the message of the prophets that happens over and over and over. And this is Samuel's role. Now, Why do we talk about that? Because understanding history will help you understand the story where we're at. And I want you to see this. Here's this barren woman, Elizabeth. She's got a husband named Zechariah. He's a priest. And verse 8 says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar at incense. So Zechariah at the time is one of about 18,000 priests at the time. And by lots, it would be chosen when your division or whatever was on during that time. You got one shot to be the one who officiates and leads over that sacrifice that time. One time. So if you're the priest... This is the pinnacle of your career. This is it. This is game time. This is his chance. 
And the people are gathered, and it it shouldn't be missed by us that the program of God is kicking back in again after 400 years of silence. When? At a religious ceremony that is designed where the people remember that they need salvation. So they're there for sacrifices. And he goes in, and there's an angel of the Lord. So this, you got to think, the guy's got butterflies and nerves already, right? He's about to go into parts of the temple he's never been to before. He's about to do things he's never done before. It's the only time he's ever going to do it. And then on top of all of that, there's an angel there, and he's afraid. We're okay with that, right? There's no shame in walking in and seeing an angel and being afraid. It says in verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. We would just say, like, duh, right? God hasn't spoken in 400 years. And this is your one shot and you walk in and there's an angel. Yeah, you're allowed to be afraid. We're not going to judge you for that. No blame there. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. Remembering some of this? And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, hopefully some of the similarities that we even heard just in Hannah's story alone are starting to resonate a little bit. Barren woman going to have a child. There's some specific vows he's going to take. Therefore, he will be set aside and be marked as being set aside. Some argue whether that's a Nazarite vow or not. Some people go, it was probably just wisdom because John's going to be a dude living in the woods with long hair, eating bugs. If he had wine, people would just think he's drunk all the time. Maybe, but he's clearly marked aside for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is given to us again. He's going to work in the role of a prophet in much the same way that all these other guys have before. He's going to be calling the people back to relationship with God. First time in 400 years. Plans kicking back in, but this time there's a new twist on it. This time there's something different that he's going to prepare, it says, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he, just like Samuel was, is going to be a prophet of transition. He's going to be the prophet of transition from the exile time and from the the time of the kingdom when there's still really not a kingdom, from this time of silence, 400 years of God, to the time when not just a king is now on the scene, but the king of kings is going to come. The role is the same. The tie-ins are there. And remember, Luke is doing this on purpose. He's pointing out things that he wants people to recognize so that they understand this isn't some new cult, man. And God didn't come in and just get out the eraser and erase the dry erase board. He didn't start over. He didn't forget. His promises aren't gone. This is what God's been up to since the very beginning. Important for us to understand. Amen? So this is his role. It's a fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is John the Baptist. Says his name will be great. Is his name great? He's John the Baptist. Most of you, I didn't need to tell you who we were even talking about. You already knew the story. So this is happening. So Zechariah's response. Remember, 
shaken in his whatever they had on. Angel, this is his go time. This is as big as it gets in his career. And an angel says this, and, and I, it's funny. Okay, verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Notice he didn't call her old. He's got tact. I'm an old man and she's oldish. <laughs> He's got some tact at least. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring this good news. Now, this is why this is funny. And I think we should appreciate humor when it comes to the Bible. And this is funny. He's standing in the temple in front of an angel. Angel says, you're going to have a child. This is what's going to happen. And when he says, how is this going to happen because I'm old? This is different than what you're going to hear in just a few minutes. This is not like, wow, that's, I'm so excited, God, that you're doing this. How are you going to work all that out? I'm so old. How are you going to do this? That's not what's happening here. This is, really? Prove it. This is doubt. It's disbelief. It's going to be called in just a minute. And so he's saying to the angel, oh yeah, you're telling me I'm going to have a baby and this is going to happen? Then show me a sign. And the angel's first response is, um, I'm an angel? I love that. He's just like, how do I know? Because I'm an angel, first of all. Like, I'm not just a dude. I'm an angel. Men have heard of me, Gabriel. I'm an angel. Um, I normally, I'm standing here in front of you now in case it's lost on you, Zechariah. Normally, the place that I stand, maybe you've heard of it, is in the presence of God. But right now I'm here. But you want, you want proof? Okay, I'll give you proof. Be careful what you wish for, Right? He gets a sign. What's his sign? Verse 20, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Notice, by the way, his unbelief did not X out the fulfillment. God is faithful. And the people were waiting. Here's the funny part again. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they're wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained moot. This is so funny. So think about this. They're all waiting out there because he's gone and done the sacrifices. They're waiting for him to come out, pronounce sins forgiven, all this kind of stuff. He comes out on the pinnacle of his career, and he can't talk. And they're like, um, say something. And now remember, it's not like he can just go, oh, pen and paper. Or I'll just text you guys. He has to go into charades. And let me ask you, how do you charade? I just saw an angel. The angel told me that my barren wife is going to have a baby. His name's going to be great and prepare the way for the Lord. What do you do for that? I mean, what, what do you do possibly for that? And, and the language that's used, it talks about he kept making signs, as in this went on for a while. <laughs> so you get a picture of this guy going, mm, mm. <laughs> like trying to constantly tell them that had to be the most frustrating thing in the world. And I can't help but think that Gabriel's around the corner just laughing it up as he watches this. So you should have listened. And so there's unbelief. 
In verse 23, when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. I would imagine he ran rather quickly. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on to me to take away my reproach among the people. With the birth of a baby, her reproach is gone. There's no more shame. There's no more, what did she do? There's no more having to explain. There's no more trying to justify herself anymore. All she has to do is point to the baby, which is really similar to what the baby's job is going to be as well. Amen? It's a beautiful thing. Can I take a side note here just, and just say too, by the way, if you're here this morning and you're childless, just be reminded of that. There is a, I didn't even mention them all, by the way. But there is a constant cycle of God working through impossible situations, specifically even the impossible situation of barrenness and childlessness. And know this, as verse 37 is going to go on to say here in just a second, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Now, but be careful. Because here's what you can do. You can attach to that, therefore I'll believe and God will absolutely give me a child. That's not necessarily true. That may not be the case. God may have you set aside for a specific purpose that involves not having a child. But God has a plan. And, and this is the part that can bring us hope. The end goal in all of these things is not the birth of a child. Remember, Hannah had a child and then gave it away. What she was worshiping was the fact that God had had mercy on her. And so let me just say to you, ladies, if you're in that place, and I can relate, and we'll get to some of that story in about two weeks, but, but listen, there's hope in God, and that hope doesn't have to mean you have to have that child. The hope we have is that we are included in the plan of the God Most High, and you have a role to play, and that should result in worship. It's hard. It's hard. But there is hope. So be encouraged by that. But at the same time, God also brings children to the childless. So ask him. Amen? Because did you notice in both cases, he heard prayers. So ask him. Now, John the Baptist's birth announcement is not the only one. As you know, there's a bigger name to come, right? Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David resonating at all based on something we might have read earlier keep that in mind and the virgin's name was mary and he came to her and said greetings O favored one the lord is with you but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be again we give everyone grace for freaking out a little bit when an angel appears right but in the message that comes to her there's one that's really interesting in there O favored one need to point out that does not mean you are amazing, and because you're so amazing, God has chosen to do something really cool for you. What it means is, you've received grace. The words here literally are translating as unmerited favor. God has just blessed you. That's going to be important in just a minute. And so this is the greeting, oh favored one. Now how, how favored do you think she felt? She's the littlest person. She's as young as 12 by the way, a seventh grader in a tiny little town, in a tiny little nation, 
with no real power, under the authority of the massive power of Rome, and, and even within the structure that they have in their culture at that time, she is such a far cry from Zechariah. I mean, he's the priest, at least. He's looked up to. She's a, she's a 12-year-old girl in a little bitty town. She's nothing. And this angel appears, same angel, appears and says, oh, favored one. Yeah, she's, she's a little puzzled. So how do you handle that news as a seventh grader? Verse 34. Oh, I, I skipped way ahead. I'm so sorry. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, it's grace. Not you earned a blessing, but you found favor with God. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now listen carefully. He will be great. He would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, who? David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Does that sound familiar? This is the Davidic covenant. The promise given to David, you will have a child And out of your lineage will come one whose throne will exist forever is now being spoken to a 12-year-old girl in a little bitty village after 400 years of silence and under the oppression of Rome. God kicks his plan back up again. Not in a palace, not in the temple with the priesthood necessarily. He comes to a 12-year-old girl. Kind of like going to a little rejected shepherd boy that's so insignificant that when the dad's supposed to bring all the sons in to anoint a king, he doesn't even bother to call David. This is what God does. There's a recurring theme in the book of Luke about how God exalts the humble and that to be great, you make yourself low. You're going to see it over and over and over as we go through the book of Luke. So this is the news. Mary, seventh grader, 12 year old. Mary, listen, you're going to have a baby. I know you haven't had sex yet. I know you're not married yet. You're betrothed, but that could be a year process. Like you're, I understand all that, but you're going to have a baby. And, and your baby's going to be the king, the Messiah. Can you imagine the pressure? Those of you that had babies, do you remember the first day they sent you home from the hospital when you get home and you're like, what do we do now? She's a 12-year-old girl who has also just been told that her baby is going to be savior of the world. In other words, Mary, take really good care of this one. He's got to save you too. Think about that. And then the flip, your pregnancy is going to bring you some reproach. Them having a baby took the blame off their shoulders. You having a baby is going to bring blame on your shoulders. It's almost a picture of the opposite. John's job was to point sinners to Jesus who took the blame on his shoulders. John, in his own sin, comes off of his shoulders, goes on to Jesus. We see the parallels even in the birth announcements and how these things are actually taking place. Elizabeth, you're going to have a baby. My reproach is gone. Mary, you're going to have a baby. People are going to talk. There's going to be a lot of shame. There's going to be a lot of finger pointing. So how do you handle that news as a seventh grader? Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, which means separated. 
the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. By the way, the angel doesn't have quite the same tact, I guess, as Zechariah, right? Hey, that old lady you're related to, Elizabeth, she's going to have a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And now look at this. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I want you to look at the contrast between these two people. Priest, respected leader in the community, job is to reconcile people to God. Zechariah, you're going to have a baby. Prove it. 12-year-old girl. And remember, Zechariah, by the way, you're going to have a baby when you actually want to have a baby. (laughs) Um, Hey, Mary, 12-year-old girl, you're going to have a baby. Not quite when you want to have a baby. And the response from the two of them is stunning, right? Prove it versus I am a servant of the Lord. Let his word, let his will be done to me. And here's why I want to point this out. In the Catholic church, Mary has been deified. In, in fact, in the Catholic church circles, it's believed that Mary can bring you salvation just as Jesus can. And that in going to, um, in going to uh, 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 Jesus in your prayers, if, if those prayers aren't coming true, you can then go ask his mom. And that's, that's real. And so as a result of some of this, the Protestant church has often done a pendulum swing away from that belief system and gone... Mary is not God. Mary is not perfect and holy and all of that kind of stuff. She's a sinner like everyone else. And you can let that pendulum swing too far and start thinking she's got nothing to say to us. Let me tell you, Mary may not be our savior, but she should be our teacher. Because what she has to say right here is tremendous. She's willing to accept the difficulties in her present situation, trusting God with her distant future. And she's saying, like this this song, as you're going to see, she's going to say that one day all people will call me blessed. Did she live and experience that? No, not in that lifetime. But she had so much trust and faith in God and in what he was doing. She was willing to say, bring on the reproach. I'm your servant. I'll bear it. At the same time, a guy whose job was to help people alleviate burdens as a priest said, prove it. She is a fantastic example for us to learn from. She's not our savior. She's not our vessel to God. She is a sinner who was saved by Jesus just like we were. But Jesus' family is intentionally pointed out as being, these people are pious. These are godly people that want to worship God, want to honor God, want to walk with God. And Luke's pointing that out on purpose because years later when Jesus is called a rebel, he wants them to understand he's not a rebel. He's a holy, pious man. Mary has much to teach us. Amen? Christmas song, Mary, did you know? I know some of you guys hate it when I say this. She knew. She knew. She knew all of it. It's an unbiblical song. (laughs) 
Verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So they knew what they were talking about here. In verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Think about it. Zechariah was told that even in the womb, the Holy Spirit was going to come upon John, who had been set aside for this mission of pointing to Jesus. And now Mary comes into the room, the baby's still in the womb. And he's like, there he is. There he is. He's here. Like he's already fulfilling his purpose when he's not even born yet. You are never too young to serve the kingdom, nor too old. Amen. Amen. And then I love this. This is funny in verse 45. I don't care who does. It's funny. And blessed is she who believed that there will be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Do you understand what she's saying? <laughs> Mary, blessed are you, blessed are you. And good on you for listening because my husband didn't. And you saw what happened to that guy. <laughs> I think that's hysterical. Women have much to teach us. Amen, ladies? Amen, ladies? All right. Just making sure. Amen, men? Oh, gosh, that was terrible. I'm starting the sermon over. Verse 46, and Mary said, and now we have Mary's song. And remember what you've already heard before, by the way. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Song sound familiar? It's a recurring theme. Those who pridefully esteem themselves, God brings down and God works through the humble. He works through people of reproach. He works through people that are suffering. He works through people that hit an end where they're like, there is nothing I can do about this anymore. And who will throw themselves on the mercy and goodness of God and trust in him. And he exalts them. And how do we know for sure he's going to do it? Because this baby that's about to come. Remember what we've been saying. With the birth of a baby, the reproach is removed. But the reproach doesn't just vanish. The reproach moves on to the shoulders of this one that's going to be born. And Jesus Christ, a itinerant rabbi, a homeless traveling preacher, former carpenter, is going to go to a cross and be killed like a common criminal, like someone that everyone should look at and say, that's who we want to avoid. But on that cross is going to carry the reproach of those who have sinned against God. But then God's going to exalt the humble. God will raise Jesus from the dead. He will ascend into heaven. And now he offers that to us by saying, humble yourself. There's a king 
and he's holy, and he's good, and he died for you. So acknowledge your need for him. Humble yourself. Confess your sins, and he will forgive you. Follow the king, and he will remove our reproach. Whether, whether it's childlessness, whether it's trouble we've gotten ourselves into, God honors those who throw themselves on his feet, who reject pride, humble themselves before the king and say, Lord, have mercy on me. But don't make it some trick formula to get all the things that you want. Mary's going to have a rough life. Mary's going to have a rough life. But she's been exalted and honored by God, I'll tell you that, as is everyone else who throws themselves at the feet of their Savior. So what do we learn from this? We learn a couple things. We learn the big picture, that this isn't just random birth. Do you guys see the tie-ins here? I don't know about you guys, but when I see how all these things come together that are written on different continents, that are written in different places, thousands of years apart, and you see how God's pulling these things together, I look at the Bible and I'm like, of course it's true. How can it not be? Like, I get excited about that stuff. Just me? Okay. Amen then? Well, amen. There we go. We know these words are true. We know God's promises are true. Even when it seems like it's been 400 years since we've heard a word from the Lord, he is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. And his faithfulness is not predicated on our obedience. But the removal of reproach is predicated on our repentance. And so we need to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and admit whether you are the priest in the high place or the 12-year-old girl in the low place, we have fallen, we have created our own kingdoms, we've done things our own way, we have sinned, but God is good and just and kind and has died for our sins, and we need to just throw ourselves on the mercy of the King. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, will you just bless us and speak to us, Lord, anew with this? May we follow the example of Mary, of Elizabeth, who worship you for the removal of reproach and understand, Lord, how you work through the lowly. And then, Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to trust you, believe in you. Help us not to go where, when we feel like we haven't heard from you for 400 years, we start doing things our own way, taking things on to ourselves. Lord, help us to keep trusting you even in the dark days. Forgive us our sins, Father. Grant us repentance, Lord. And more than anything, we just thank you for the beauty of your gospel. We can see, Lord, that this wasn't just some baby that was born. This was a culmination of so many things that you had been doing for so long. And then to understand that the purpose of all of that was that you might save a wretch like me. We are in awe, Lord. So Lord, as we continue to study these stories that many of us have heard a hundred or a thousand times, may we just be again over and over filled with a renewed awe at your goodness, your, mer your, your mercy, your majesty, and your plan. May you bless your people as they carry the gospel out of the walls of this place. May people be encouraged. May hurting people be healed. And I just pray your blessing over your church this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I love you guys. God bless.